We'll turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis uh, 25, and uh, let me um, read our passage today. It's not quite as long of a section in Genesis that we're looking at, and we've been uh, looking at uh, Genesis with the theme of legacy and, and leaving a legacy of faith, leaving a legacy of faith, and that's kind of been our focus as a, as a church. And so we're coming to Genesis 25, and uh, starting in verse 19, and it's a little bit of a long section, but if you listen to the story, it's yet another great story. It's on the heels of the uh, marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, and now that they are married, and they've been married for about 20 years, and, uh, and, and Rebekah is, is going to have twins, which is hard enough in, in the modern world. Can you imagine having twins in the ancient world, right? And so we're going to pick this up in verse 19 and just listen carefully as we prepare our hearts for Scripture. It says here, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the father of Bethuel, the Aramine of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramine, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, if, the, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger." And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there was twins in her womb. And the first came out red, and all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which that means hairy. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so that his name was called Jacob, which means he grabs the heel. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau, or Harry, not to confuse you with the names, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob, the one that seizes, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That's my Harry son. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Soft, gentle. And once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die, whatever. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil and stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen. As we've talked about on many occasions, anytime you want to talk about legacy or leaving a wake and a ripple, leaving a legacy of faith, leaving a legacy of light and goodness. 
oftentimes that type of legacy is going to be forged in the crucible of affliction. Difficulties and trials will come, and it's in those difficulties and trials that we often have to decide what kind of legacy we will leave based upon our response to those trials. We've talked about on many occasions that storms in life either shape us or they sink us, depending upon our response. When we come to this story in Genesis, we come to yet another storm and time of difficulty in a couple's life. We know from what we looked at last week that Jacob loved, or Isaac loved Rebekah. And we know that Rebekah loved Isaac. Isaac was her way out of a culture of deceit, a culture of, of, of manipulation. Isaac was her new promise, her new life, her new land. And, and for Isaac, Rebekah was a fulfillment of the ongoing promise and covenant that God had, pro- had promised to Abraham. And they were in love. But the problem was is that she couldn't have a baby. And this is a theme in the book of Genesis. It's the theme of barrenness. It's the theme of emptiness. It's the theme of wilderness. It's the theme of God saying, I'm with you and you going, but I'm in a desert. And I can't even have a baby. The text is quick with the timeline. It feels like it doesn't last long, but you got to understand they waited 20 years as she's going through this barrenness. And so in the context of that crucible, in the context of that affliction and that adversity, Isaac does what we all need to do. He prays, doesn't he? And he prays to God and he says, God, we are barren. And I know based upon my own life and my own testimony that my own mother was barren and she bore me because of your grace. And so I know that you are the God that that gives life in the wilderness, that gives life in barrenness. Isn't that great news? Isn't that one of the primary themes of Genesis? Even in Genesis 1, the Spirit hovered over the darkness and the void. And God said, let there be light. And light defeated darkness. That theme of barrenness started in Genesis 1, and it continues to remind us over and over again, when we are barren, when we are empty, God can bring life out of nothing. And that's why Isaac prays, and that's why you and I should pray. We should pray that God gives us life even in the storm, that God would, would, give us, would give us good things in the midst of bad circumstances. I'm sure there's somebody here who needs to hear that. I know I need to hear that. Somebody said on the way in as I was greeting everybody, somebody said, lay it on us thick. Somebody here is empty. Somebody here has a wilderness. And Isaac gives us that ancient rule of life. Isaac reminds us that there is a God. And this God is in conversation with his creation. This God is in conversation with us. And he is the God that hears and listens and we can pray to him, can't we? We can let our requests be known to him. We can bend the knee and pray. And that's exactly what he does. And God answers his prayer. And not only his prayer, but Rebecca's prayer. Hallelujah. She realizes she's pregnant, but there's a problem. 
Because God will always answer our prayers, but sometimes he answers our prayers in a way that we don't expect or the way that we don't want. And what happens is, is as she's pregnant, at first she rejoices, but she realizes really quickly that this answered prayer is a prayer that's answered but still with a great deal of pain. In fact, when you come to the text and you come to... Uh, you come to uh, Uh, verse uh, 21 and 22. In verse 22, look at it carefully. It says that the children struggled together within her. That word for struggle is a Hebrew word that literally means abuse or crush. And what it means is that not only does she have twins and she doesn't know that in her, but her pregnancy is really painful. And and it's really a, a problematic painful, physically difficult pregnancy, and you hear her cry out to God, why? Everybody say, why? Why? Somebody said that really loud. Amen. Why? And you know what she's asking? She goes, thank you for answering the prayer, but if you were going to answer it this way, underneath the text, if you're going to answer it this way, why are you going to answer it in this way? Why is it? Why can't it be normal? When I asked for a baby, I was asking for a normal process. You know, you get pregnant and you have the difficulty in the first trimester. You get over it in the second trimester. In the third trimester, you're just huge. And then you have a baby and you have a normal family and everything goes on. And I can count on my Monday being what it should be. I can count on my Tuesday being what it should be. I can count on my Wednesday being what it should be. God, why do you have to do everything so Weird. Can I, can I just say this? That she asks God. She, it says she inquires of the Lord. And you know, I have to tell you, that is a good thing to do when you're asking why questions. It is good and biblical and godly to come to God and to be honest with him and to say, this is hurting me. And I don't understand it. And I know you're God. But see, God is our Father, and he allows conversation. He allows us to come and say, why? You can hear David say it over and over in Psalm. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus said, why have you forsaken me on the cross? This is what he asked. And I have to tell you, you can't get any answers from God until you start asking some questions. And if you don't ask God about your bitterness, if you don't ask God about your confusion, about why things aren't normal, if you, if you don't ask God, you're going to ask somebody else. And you're going to go to people that you shouldn't go to that don't have the answers like God has. Can I get an amen? Isn't that the world? Isn't that this barren world? We're all asking the same questions. That's not the issue. The issue is where are we going to take those questions? And the Bible says take those questions to God, but don't take it to people who don't know God. Don't take it to things that are going to drive you away from God. Don't take those questions and those inquiries about pain and wilderness to places and things that don't possibly understand what's going on. Go to God. He is the truth. He is the light. He will give life. He will give you grace even if you're bitter, even if you're mad at God. He will welcome you. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Anyone who comes to me, I will take care of. I am am a good shepherd. I am lowly and gentle in spirit. I am humble. I want to give you rest for your soul. Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden. Come to me if you're in pain or confused. I get confused. 
And I have to make a decision in those confusing moments. Will I go to the wrong sources or will I inquire of God? And Rebecca inquires of God. That was the right thing to do in her pain. And God gives her an answer. And God's answer is awesome because it it has two levels. Like all of God's answers do, there's two levels to his answer. There's kind of the broad, sweeping answer. You can see it, probably the key verse in the text, verse 23. It says that the Lord said to her, and yes, God speaks to women. Can I get an amen? Women can be a prophetess. Women can receive the word of the Lord just like a man. That's what Genesis teaches us. God made, God made human beings male and female in his image. He created them, and there is the matriarch, and she's receiving from God. And God speaks to her, and he says to her, Two, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And you know what he's saying on a broad level? What's he saying? Well, you got twins in you. That's why it's unusual. I know you've never seen a woman go through the pain you're going through, and that's because when women have twins, that's more painful and more difficult, especially in the ancient world. So you got twins in you. That's why you're going through it. But there's a deeper meaning. Because he says to her, Rebecca, there is, there is a story here that is so much bigger than you. There is a narrative that is so much bigger than what's going on in just your life. A much larger legacy. Uh, and I can't even fully make you understand except for that nations are involved. Whole groups of people awake, a ripple, a legacy you can't even fathom. And I know, I know that it's painful, but if you could only see the final outcome of this pain, you would welcome the labor. You would welcome the pain. If you could only see the full fruit and outcome of this pain you're going through, you would welcome it and celebrate it and say to everybody, this pain is awesome because of the final outcome. And there's no way she could fully understand that except for by faith in God's promise. And you know what the full outcome of this is? The full outcome of these two roaring nations, these, the younger being served by the older. The final outcome is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus would come through Jacob. And the final outcome is the church, and the final outcome is a heaven with people of many ethnic groups worshiping at the feet of Jesus. But there's no way Rebecca could fully understand that. And can I say, there's a life principle. You and I don't fully understand the final outcome of our pain. We just don't. And you know what it requires? It requires us trusting in God in the crucible of pain. It requires saying, you are God, you are sovereign, I don't understand it. I probably never will fully understand all of my pain. I probably, on this side of earth, will not have all the final answers of why this happened to me, or why this happened to him, or why this happened to her. I probably will never fully understand the evil in the world or the darkness, but I trust that you are working everything out to the good so that when we finally see the end result, all the sad things will become untrue, and all the sad things will add up to a glory so wonderful that God will be proved glorious. 
Are you trusting God in your pain and affliction? Because that's ultimately what God is asking Rebecca to do. Two nations. Two nations. (laughs) As they begin to grow up, these two twins begin to show who they are. They begin to show their personalities and how they're made. And what we have in the twins of Esau and Jacob, Esau being older because he came out first, Jacob comes out second, and so Esau is the older brother. And we see that they are complete opposites. We alluded in our reading that Esau is hairy, Jacob is not. Esau is red, Jacob is white. Uh, Esau is athletic, a jock, a man who can go out and hunt and, and jump and shoot an arrow. And, and, and God guns and guts made America, or no, that doesn't work. But, I mean, he's, he's a man. He's Gaston, or whatever that dude's name was. Why do I always get Disney movies wrong? Anyways... He's athletic, but we also see his weakness. His weakness is he's impulsive and impatient. He doesn't care about the future. He's so temporal-minded. He wants to go out and hunt. He wants to come home and eat. I'm not worried about birthrights and legacies and final outcomes. I'm going to go do business. I'm going to win, and I want some food on the table when I get home. So impulsive and impatient, so temporal in his understanding that he's willing to give up his birthright for one single meal. Now, we go, that is just crazy talk. And that's exactly what he does. He gives up his birthright. He gives up all the wealth that could have been his, that belonged first to Abraham, then belonged to Isaac, and then could have belonged to him. We could be reading in the Bible today, it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why is that? Because he was so concerned about pleasure and and the flesh and the immediate temporal that he gave up that birthright for one meal of stew. Can you imagine? And we go, that is just crazy. But you know what? I have done that so many times in my life, haven't you? I have given up so much of what I have in Christ for temporary pleasures and for manipulation and for, and for things that are about me and for that good feeling that I get for, for however long I give up my soul. I give up my spirit. I give up truth. I give up good values. I give up, I give up God's light for a moment of darkness, for a taste of pleasure. I give up so much. And you know what? You and I, we are like Esau. We struggle. Lay it on me thick, preacher. I'm bringing it. That's the world. Tough. Demanding. Liberated. Rights. I've got rights. In that culture, everybody, interest groups, Groups using sexuality to get their powers, using sexuality to get their outcomes that they want politically. People using the color of their skin to get the outcomes that they want. People using conservative patriotism to get the outcomes they want. This is a culture of Esau's trying to be strong and hairy and I'm going to go out and I want food on that plate. I'm hungry 
Feed me. Give to me. I demand it. Ah, that's the flesh. That's Esau. Now Jacob. We go, well, surely Jacob's the good guy, right? Oh, no. I mean, there literally is nobody to like in this story. Can I get an amen? He is painful, Jacob is. Jacob, the one who takes the heel, the one who overreaches, the one who manipulates, the one who looks at the jock and goes, I'm just going to bide my time and get exactly what I want. I know what he's up to. He's going to come in here. You know, I got to tell you, I love the whole fact that God loves the younger brother and not the older brother because I'm the youngest of three. So I'm always like. I remember coming home from school. And I'd be there first because I got out of elementary school. And then my brothers, six years older and ten years older, they'd come home from high school and I knew what was coming. Hey, you little punk, go get me a Coke. Hey, man, go, go, make, me a, go make me a bowl of cereal. Hey, do it now. Chop, chop. Let's go. You don't want a beating. I dealt with this from my older brothers. They're in ministry now, which means I'm better than them because they're so bad. <laughs> so bad. One time, my older brother came home and he said, hey, fix me a bowl of Wheaties. And that's when I went, hmm. You know, salt looks a lot like sugar. (laughs) The breakfast of champions became the opportunity for revenge. I went into the kitchen. I put that Wheaties in that bowl, and I took the salt shaker, and I laid it on thick. And then I poured the milk, and I went, and I laid it at his feet. And I said to him, I gave you some extra sugar this time. And then I walked out of the room. And I locked myself in the bathroom. Hallelujah for the lock. Next thing I knew, all I heard was, Joshua! And man, he came a pounding. I, I hold myself up in that bathroom. If I'm lying, I'm dying for about three hours. Because he just sat out there. He's like, you got to come out at some point in time. Jacob knows big brother's coming home. And Jacob wants that birthright. Jacob wants that birthright. And Jacob knows in his conniving, patient, quiet, cool, soft, mama boy's way. He knows exactly how to get it. And the moment that Esau, Mr. Harry, says, I am dying of hunger, because that's what he's saying. He's got many years to live. He's saying, I'm so hungry, I could die. He's like, just give me your birthright. Whatever, give me the stew. It literally says in the Hebrew, I want to gulp up the red stew, the red stew. It literally says it twice. He says it twice. I just want to gulp the red stew, the red stew. And Jacob manipulates We ask ourselves, what's the point of this story? The point is is that there's nobody to pull for. The point is that there is no one who is worthy. 
The point is, is that no one has earned the right for any inheritance or any birthright. And every single one of us in here, we're either the jock or we're the Jacob. We're either the manipulating, conniving, using the passion of other people to win our cause. Or we're the passionate ones demanding what we want. We're either religion who waits around for others to fail. That's Jacob. Or were the world, Esau, demanding our rights? Are you religious or irreligious? Either way, it doesn't matter. None of us have earned God's favor, earned the right. And that's why God says to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger because it's not about merit. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about the color of your skin. It's not about your religion. It's about my grace and my mercy choosing one over the other. And I will choose the younger to show the world that it's not about strength. It's about my mercy. It's about grace. You see, and this is when we stop, and this is where we got to be real careful. Because we go, well, then God really likes the fact that I'm sinful. God really likes the fact that I'm dysfunctional. And so the more I admit that I'm dysfunctional, the more that, that I get God's grace. Listen, we don't get God's grace because we're dysfunctional. We get God's grace because he is good. Because he is merciful. When we begin to pull this story together of Jacob and Esau, of, of, of Esau being the, 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 the strong one who demands his right, and Jacob being the manipulating, quiet, uh, cunning opponent, we begin to pull together some ideas. And the New Testament is very articulate on two particular lessons that we can learn from this narrative and this story because the New Testament picks up on these great themes and these great characters and these great stories and says, here is the meaning. The first passage I want to take you to in the New Testament is Romans chapter 9, verses uh, 10 and following. And in this passage, we learn what we learn from Jacob. And what we learn from Jacob is the idea of God's mercy grace. I'm going to call it mercy. I'm going to put a hyphen in there and call it mercy grace. And that's what we learn about from Jacob's story. Uh, He gets the birthright by grace. He gets the birthright because God allows it to happen. And Paul, uh, in a very articulate way, draws this out. Now listen to this, Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. Paul says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written... Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is Gospel, man, that is good news. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. You know that, right? That's what mercy means. In fact, mercy, the difference between grace and mercy, mercy means you don't get what you deserve. And you know what you and I deserve? We deserve to be judged and punished because we've manipulated like Jacob has, right? 
But grace is getting something from God that we have not earned, which is his righteousness and his goodness and his light and his truth and his, and his, his very life in us. And so in this passage is this great passage where, where Paul is saying that Jacob proves that, that or, or, or Jacob in his life proves that God chooses whom he will save, whom he will choose to receive and to, and to experience the grace of God. That's clearly what he's saying. And that's clearly what the passage says. When we, when you and I, when we... <laughs> When we're honest with ourselves and we really look at mercy and grace the way it's played out uh, biblically, we realize that there's nothing in us that has deserved or earned the right for God's favor. Is that true? And are you more deserving of God's grace and favor than somebody else? No. It's all grace and all mercy. And Jacob proves that point. You're like, well, so what's the application? The application is this, is that we fall and fail in God's presence, not because we do horrible things, but because we forget our dependence on him and his mercy and his grace. It is an applicable doctrine, isn't it, this doctrine of grace? Because the moment that you and I don't depend and trust in him with all of our heart and we begin to lean on our own understanding, the moment that we begin to use our own resources and our own wisdom outside of God's word is the moment that we begin to grasp and overreach. And that's when we will fall. But the moment that we remember that everything good comes by our admitting our dependence. I am convinced that the world falls from God because it fails to see how good he is and how much we need him. That's why we fail. That's why we're finally judged. It's not because we do murder or we drink too much or we do this bad thing or this bad thing. All those are symptoms of the larger principle at work. I am not depending on God today. And I've got to trust in him, not in some of my ways, but in all my ways. I need to have a stream and a flow of consciousness that's playing God into my life and and his power and his strength and my neediness of him. I must humble myself under the mighty hand of God. Because if I don't, then on the one hand, I'll either be like Harry Esau. Where's my plate of food? Fix that bowl of Wheaties. Or I'll end up being Jacob, like, I'm going to get them now. I'm going to exploit their weaknesses. I'm going to, I'm going to, remember when Jesus said, don't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. You know what he was talking about? People who do this. That's Jacob, isn't it? And when I stop depending on God, I stop trusting in God. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to get them. I'm going to exploit them. I'm going to exploit everyone in this world for my own benefit, for my own cause, for my own thing. I'm going to make it about me, and I'm going to get my birthright. I'm going to get my salvation. I'm going to get what I want. You know what Paul's saying? In the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, you need to walk in that. You are dependent on God. Your favor from him comes because it comes from his goodness, not your manipulation. Jacob proves the mercy grace and that we need to walk in the mercy grace of God. Now, quickly, we learn a lesson from Esau. And Esau, we learn the lesson, his lesson in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about him. 
And that's, it's kind of cool because in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about all the heroes of faith, all those who walked by faith, Abraham and Moses and, and Joseph, and you got this hall of fame of faith people. But in chapter 12, we have in contrast, we have this Esau character who doesn't belong in the hall of fame of faith. He belongs in the, in the, in the hall of shame from the world. And it says here, now watch this, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 uh, and following, the writer says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That, you see, that's so interesting, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? See what the writer of Hebrews is doing? You can't obtain the grace of God, but what he's saying, now that you got it, walk in it, obtain it, even though you can't obtain it. Keep your mind on that grace. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now that word, that phrase, sexual immorality, it comes from one Hebrew word, pornos, which is where we get our word pornography from. It stands for a type of fornication or immorality. It can, it, can it can be a literal use or a metaphorical use, and there's a big debate. Like, is he talking about a metaphorical use? Remember how the prophets used to say about the people of God, you have prostituted yourself out in worshiping idols and not God, Right? And so it could mean metaphorically that we, that, we are, uh, that we are prostituting ourselves out, that Esau prostituted himself out for a meal, the, the idol of a meal, as opposed, to, as opposed to receiving what God has for him. He took something and worshipped it in the place of God. Now, I think that's what he means here, not literal, although one of the symptoms and outcomes might have been that Esau was a sexually immoral man. But I think it might be more metaphorical that he is prostituting prostituting himself out for and worshiping something in the place of God and certainly worshiping something in the place of what God has for him. He wants the meal like he wants it, not the meal that God has for him. He wants the stuff he wants, not what God has for him. And so we see this misplaced values. That's what Esau teaches us is about misplaced values. We value all kinds of other things as more important than God. We value other things more than we value what God has for us. Misplaced value. So two lessons. From Jacob, we learn about grace and mercy. And from Esau, we get a warning about misplaced values. And what it adds up to is this, beloved, and this is the point of the whole day. I'm going to give you, this is the payoff right now. Can I get an, you want the payoff? I got graduates today, man. Everybody's graduating from college and high school. I'm going to give all you guys, this is the payoff. Don't waste your inheritance in Christ. It is given to you free of charge by grace. And the great and glorious thing is this. In Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Verses, listen to this, verses 11 and following. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you 
That's grace. There's, your, there's Jacob. He's qualified by God. He's not, he's not called because he's qualified. He's, God is qualifying him and calling him in grace. He has qualified you the same way to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have a glorious inheritance if you have Christ. Can I get an amen? The moment you received Christ, you received an inheritance and the fullness and light and love and forgiveness and redemption. You have received all of these things in Christ. And that came not because you earned it, but because he chose to give it to you. And you believed in Jesus and you crossed the line of faith and you walked into an inheritance. And the warning for us is don't waste your inheritance. Don't be like Esau and give that up. What, if you could make a list of all the things you've received in Christ, what would that list look like? You know what my list looks like? I got some things down. I wrote them if I can find them in my notes. It's our really, it's stapled weird. I don't know. I didn't have much time to prepare. Here's all the things I have in Christ. Not because I've earned them. Not because I'm so important. Not because I'm a pastor or a preacher. I'm a sinner saved by grace. What I have in Christ is I have love from God. And I'm not going to waste that love. I'm not going to walk around defeated or let my enemy tell me I'm something I'm not. I'm not going to let somebody tell me that I'm not lovely to God. I'm going to walk around and I'm going to stand in this world not because I'm like Esau demanding, but I'm going to stand in this world because God has given me his love. There there are so many people walking around. They're so beat down. They need the love of God so bad. And when you're in Christ, don't waste it. You've got it. If you have Jesus, you've got it. But do you waste it from day to day? That's the message. Don't waste God's love. The other thing I have from God in Christ, this is my inheritance. I have forgiveness. You're for, do you know you're forgiven? And you know, you should not, you and I, we cannot waste our forgiveness. And you know how I waste God's forgiveness in my life? I don't repent of the very sin that he is forgiving me of. I don't take the opportunity to honestly reflect and say, am I being too hairy today? Am I being too red? Am I being manipulative? Controlling, overreaching? Forgiveness gives me the room to honestly reflect on my life and to change without worrying about condemnation because one of the things I have in Christ is no condemnation. Don't waste God's forgiveness. Another thing I have in Christ as an inheritance is I have truth. I have have this... Are you kidding? This is the prophets and the apostles led along by the Holy Spirit inspiring this word. And God says, open it up. It is like a light in dark places. It is like like a light for your feet. You will know your path if you open it up. Don't waste your inheritance by neglecting this book. 
Don't give up your birthright for the stew of the world. For the, for the plates of wisdom, of stew, the temporal ideas and wisdom of the world in place of the light of God's truth. Don't waste your inheritance in Christ. It is glorious. It is truthful. It will guide you. It will lead you. It will lead you to God. I have scripture in Christ. I have, I have the word. Another thing I have in Christ, how much time do I have left? I can keep going until the time is up. I have hope in Christ, an inheritance that's heaven, a new world coming. Jesus sitting on the throne of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who says, I am making all things new. I will wipe away every tear. I will take away all the pain. You will never be sick again. And you know how I waste that inheritance from day to day? As I let pain and sickness and tears overwhelm me with despair. As opposed to walking in hope. It's good to grieve, but don't grieve without hope. It's good to, it's good to be sorrowful, but don't sorrow without forgetting that one day that sorrow will be taken away. Walk in hope. Don't waste your inheritance. It is glorious. It is wonderful. It is, it is life-saving. It is life-guiding. Don't waste your glorious inheritance in Christ. And let me give you one more. I'll just give you one more, and then I'll be done. Your inheritance is Christ as you have community. You have the church. You have home. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't waste that. <laughs> Love each other biblically. Be a community that walks together biblically. Be a community that, 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 that doesn't waste what he's given you. Christ has purchased a multicolored kingdom to come together and worship him with the infinite price of his blood. Let us not waste the community he has given us. Let us not be at strife with one another. Let us not be divisive. Let us be unified in, in love. And let us speak the truth to one another. And let us receive truth from one another. And let us hold each other accountable. And let us, let us be the community of truth, of scripture. Don't waste your inheritance in Christ. I could go on. You can make up your own list. That could be a project for you this week. What do I have in Christ that I'm wasting? I'm not going to waste my inheritance anymore. I am not going to waste what Jesus has given to me. I'm not going to give up my birthright like Esau. No, no, no. I'm going to walk in my birthright that Christ purchased for me when he died for my sins and rose again on the third day. Now, let me read one more verse. Go back to Genesis. I'm going to close with this. Go back to Genesis. Let me read to you Genesis 25, and let's look at the very last sentence one more time at the end of the chapter. I'll read the whole verse, verse 34. This is, this is good. I just feel like I'm supposed to say this. This is something that God's been working with me on, and so I'm going to close with this very idea. It says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. The, now, this is interesting how he ends it. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, here's my, my point. It's interesting that it doesn't say Jacob stole the birthright. That's what you expect it to say. You expect it to say that nasty Jacob stole his birthright. 
That's what you expected. But what it says is Esau despised, you could circle that word despised, his birthright. Here's what I want you to know. I don't want you to waste your glorious inheritance in Christ. And one of the ways we waste it is that we give Satan something to use in our life to destroy us. We're being attacked, right? You have an enemy, an accuser that accuses you day and night. He's attacking. But you know what? He has no power over us if we don't give him something to take from us. Isn't that right? It's not Jacob's fault that Esau so easily despised his birthright. If Esau doesn't despise his birthright, then Jacob can't do anything to him. He can't fool him with a pot of stew. And Satan takes us not because he's so clever, but because we're so willing to give up what we have in Christ. And we are easy opponents to defeat when we give Satan something, bait. We give him weaknesses to exploit. Listen. Let Christ renew you. Walk in his inheritance and you won't despise the birthright. I just felt like I was supposed to say that before we take communion. Let us pray for our communion. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are gracious and loving and good and forgiving and redeeming in Christ. And we receive that now. And we are are asking that you would that you would bring us to this table a table that reminds us of what you've offered us something that is worth more than what all the world could offer us gathered together in one pile couldn't add up to the immeasurable love of you offering up your son father his body and his blood this is the meal we need this is the moment that we need. This is the reminder that we need. Help us to feed on Christ spiritually as we remember him physically at this table. Help us to to be appropriately transformed by the very idea that Jesus came to die for our sins. You have given us, Jesus, your body and your blood. And we come and we know, we confess that we have sinned. We confess that, that, that we have fallen short and that we needed you to come and to make atonement in your body. We needed you to come and to pay the price with your blood. But we thank you that we can stand assured that we are forgiven by faith alone. That we are forgiven by grace. And God, if there's somebody who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't been forgiven, give them the mercy to cross the line of faith. Give them the willingness to choose Jesus as their atonement for their life. Thank you for this meal. And for everybody here, the way we do communion at Crosspoint, anyone who has said, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and defeated death, anyone who is a believer is welcome to this table. And we want you to eat this meal with us and to remember the death of Jesus in our place. But if you're investigating or you're not a Christian and you're, you're exploring the faith, we want to be a church where people can explore Christianity and the gospel. But this is the moment where we need you to stay where you're at and consider believing in Jesus and not take this meal with us. We would respectfully ask you to observe what we Christians physically love to honor, which is to stand up and to eat and drink in remembrance of our Savior and our Lord. 
And so with that being said, let us worship Christ, be reflective, and yet, yet let us not forbid our heart's joy as we remember him being our substitute. And so the tables are open, come down the middle aisles, grab the elements, go back. We eat and drink together, so wait for our instruction as we, as we eat together as a community. The tables are open. Amen.